Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. How's everybody? New year, new hopes, a whole other year to set goals, make memories, regrets. I hope you're starting off the year optimistic. It's right for us to do that. Um, Disappointments will come and go, but it's right for us to begin every new year exercising this thing called hope, which God has given us. As long as God is alive, the failures in our lives don't have to be the end of the story, do they? Every year on my computer, um, one of the the neat things that I get to do in, in January is I start a new folder under my sermons directory for that year's messages. And this year, I just happened to notice that I started my 20th folder. And I realized, my goodness, we've been doing this here at Harvest for 20 years. This year in the summer will mark the 20th year that our church has been going. And I don't know, if if any of you are into that kind of thing, it might be good for us to form a team to find some way to acknowledge and celebrate that our church is turning 20 this summer. And it's been my privilege to preach from this pulpit, and symbolically, I don't mean this particular music stand, but in front of this congregation for 20 years, uh, what a joy it's been. Uh, Over the last 20 years, I've had the privilege of preaching from this particular text at least 20 times, not all of them here, in fact, most of them in different cities across the U.S. and across the world, and every time I've preached this text, um, I've skipped reading the text because it's so long. It's 42 verses, and I always start by telling people, this passage is so long that it would take too long to read. I'm just going to hit the highlights. But this morning, I was really struck by the conviction that we ought to read it from the beginning to the end and let the text of the Word of God begin speaking for itself first before anything else is added to it. So I'm going to do that. I'd like to read for you and with you John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. I last preached from this text three and a half years ago at our church, but I'm going to return to it with a different lens this morning. So I think the message will turn out somewhat different from what you may remember. Um, But I'm going to look at John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42, out of the NIV. This is the word of God. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. And so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, 
If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town, to the town, and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words... Many more became believers. 
They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Amen. As you can tell, um, that's a very, very full and rich passage of Scripture. I'm pretty sure, long-winded as I am, that I could preach from now until the end of July on that one chapter of Scripture alone and not exhaust its riches and its depth of insight. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning. I'm going to only touch on one part of it, wearing the lens of conversation, because I think there's something profound to be seen in this passage about the way that Jesus engaged people in spiritual conversations. Now, if you love and respect someone, and they give you parting words, words that say, this is my wish for you, my last will and testament, my charge to you, if you loved and respected that person, you would take those last wishes pretty seriously, wouldn't you? I like to imagine that if on my deathbed I looked at my children and said, whatever else you do in this life, serve the Lord. I would like to think that I've done something right in their lives. They'd be like, dang, that's like serious. Dad wants us to serve. And I would like to think that at some point in their life, they would go, I remember what dad said before he, he died. We should do that. And I feel like that's how we should be. And Jesus' last charge to the people who followed him is something we have come to call the Great Commission. And in that last will, he said to them, he charged them, this is your lifelong mission. Wherever you go, make disciples of everyone you come across. Now, I have to say that in our modern times, this phrase, make disciples, has, I think, come to be understood as train the people who are already saved so that they become not just regular sailors, but Navy SEALs, right? Isn't that the way you kind of think about discipleship? It's the way we've sort of even talked about here. There's like regular small groups, and then there's discipleship groups. The regular small groups are for everybody, but the discipleship groups, you've got to be like pretty serious and hardcore you got to do a lot of reading, a lot of reflection. you got to make sure you come every time. We think of disciple-making as this sort of training on steroids for the already saved. But what's interesting is that the language Jesus uses, he doesn't say train disciples wherever you go. He says make them. And I think the presumption we often miss is that in Jesus' eyes, making disciples began with winning the hearts of lost people to salvation in Christ. To find people who have no relationship with God and show them that life for them, real life, begins as they place their entire trust in Jesus Christ. In other words, I believe that disciple-making really begins with evangelism. Now, here's the irony of all of this. As I made my 20th sermon folder on my computer, I, I kind of got into this reflective mode thinking back on my ministry calling. And the truth is, This thing called the Great Commission is one of the key reasons I entered vocational ministry. I was so affected by my deep study of that particular command of Jesus. And it was one of the things that pulled me into seminary and into a life of vocational ministry. I thought I was going to be a missionary. God ended up having me be a pastor. But as I look back on my 20-year track record of, of ministry here at Harvest, the irony 
the heavy irony is that the call to make disciples was what drew me into ministry. But over the last 20 years, I have not led very many people to salvation in Christ. I've led a lot of saved people into a deeper life with Christ, but it has not been my joy to watch dozens upon dozens of far people far away from God find their way home to Jesus Christ. Now, as I reflected on that, I also perceived a second thing happening in my heart, and that is that this call to make disciples is gaining fresh steam in my heart. I'm really energized by this calling again, and it's been something very much on my mind. And because it's been on my mind, it will be on my lips, and it will be in your ears for a while to come. I really want to issue an invitation and a challenge to our congregation to think about whether or not we are bearing fruit in this great command of Jesus to us, to make disciples of the people we come across. Beginning with finding people, and you don't, you don't have to look very far in your life to find such people, who have no awareness of or relationship with God, and point them to the Savior, Jesus Christ, and watch as they pass from death to life. Watch as the lights come on and the joy floods their hearts. The same joy that holds you close to him can become theirs. Now, I know many of you, you're surrounded by people who are not Christian, and in your wildest imagination, even if you had pharmaceutical assistance, you could not picture them following Jesus. They're just too hardened. They're too secular. They're too radicalized in the world. But I want you to know that those very people may be much readier than you could imagine to start this journey with Jesus Christ. So I'm going to look at this passage, draw two important points looking at this encounter Jesus had through the lens of spiritual conversations. And then after next week's revival, uh, by the way, I know we're calling it a revival, that's just because it's what you call it when you go to church three times in one weekend and you don't go away to some camp. It's either a retreat or a revival. Some of you came from a church tradition where there's a lot of baggage associated with revival meetings. We're not asking you to come to refocus and walk away all fired up. Like That's not the whole point. I don't know what God's going to do that weekend, but I know that it wouldn't hurt you. I know that it's going to only help you to come where God is moving. And so I want to invite you into that after next weekend. For the next nine weeks after that, I'm going to be speaking about exactly how we do this thing called spiritual conversations. I want to teach you and train you in some things we can do that don't make it so um, frightening and so awkward and uncomfortable but really equip you to enjoy and find life in engaging these kind of conversations with people who are far from God. I think at the end of that series, rather than feeling heavy and worn out about it, you're going to feel a lightness in your spirit and a desire to get started. And so I hope that that will excite you. Some of you will hear that series and it's not going to be enough. You want more. You're hungry. It's just an appetizer. And so we are hoping this spring to roll out further training in how to go deeper with this, as well as rolling out some tangible opportunities for you to get going in the ministry of helping people who are far from God find their way home to him. Now, in this particular encounter Jesus has with the Samaritan woman, If we look at it through the lens of spiritual conversation, here are a couple things I just want to say to you from this text. And the first is, start a conversation. Start a conversation. 
It's not as hard as you might think. Let me just make a confession to you. I spent a lot of my life on planes. I didn't think I would as a pastor. When I first became a pastor, I pictured sitting in a quiet room surrounded by books and just praying and studying and writing and reading all the time. I had no idea I'd log half a million miles on airplanes going all over the place doing ministry. And at least when I'm on the return trip home and I get on a plane, I have just spent several days talking nonstop and listening to people. When I go to speak somewhere, I don't just preach from the pulpit. I do like a year's worth of counseling. I mean, it's it's kind of awkward, but I'll sit at this church. I don't know anyone. And the pastor will say, would you talk to someone? They have questions. So I'll sit in a room, and I'll look out the window. There's like a line of 30 people waiting to get some advice. So by the time I leave that speaking engagement, I'm done talking and listening. I'm fried. I'm, like, I'm just like a smoking ember. And when I get on that plane, I'm going, please... Please let the person next to me get comatose the minute we take. I just don't want to. I don't want that guy who goes, hey, what's your line, man? What do you do for a living? I, 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 I just really pray to God I don't have that guy sitting next to me. And that's my confession because I think that's messed up. But that's the truth. That most of the time when I get on a plane, I don't want to talk to anybody. And so I put on my Bose noise-canceling headphones as a kind of sign and force field, don't talk to you. Even if you try, but noise can't. I, I can't hear anything you're saying. It's my way of saying don't even start because I'm not here to talk to you or to listen to you. And I even rationalize, really, what's the point of getting into this deep conversation with some dude I'm going to know for like three hours of my life and I'll never see him again? Isn't that the rationale that we often use? What's the point? It's a cab driver. It's my fellow passenger on an airplane. What could really come out of engaging this person? Is he going to be my bosom buddy, the best man at my wedding? No. He's somebody who I'm going to barely remember his first name even tomorrow. And yet I think Jesus would never have shied away from a conversation. I think partly it's because He was so clear on what his earthly mission was. In Luke 19.10, he says with absolute clarity, the reason I'm here is to seek and save lost people. It's my whole mission. There are people that God loved, he shaped, he formed, and they're lost to him. There's a gulf separating them from the Father heart of God, and his mission is to bridge that gap, to close the gulf and bring people back home to their Heavenly Father. And I think he understood that the way that happens the majority of the time is through words and the way the power of the Holy Spirit uses words. Nobody gets saved telepathically. The truth is that Jesus himself is called the living word, the logos. He is the word of God. The gospel, the life-saving message is called the good news. This kingdom of God is built so largely on the power of words. I really agree with Paul when he says in Romans chapter 10 verses 13 to 14, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? 
The truth is that the way people have come to know God through Jesus Christ for thousands of years is that somebody else told them about him. That conversations are the means by which so many multitudes have found eternal life. So as I sit next to that that passenger on a plane, ironically praying (laughs) that that person won't talk to me, it might be that one conversation that changes the course of their whole life. Look at how this encounter begins. Jacob's well was there. Now, you got to understand, this is like people are drawing water from... It's, it'd be as if you were using the Declaration of Independence as scratch paper. I mean, this is like a relic of ancient times, one of the most sacred sites, and they're still just drawing water to drink from. It's an incredible place. And Jesus happens upon it. And look at... I love that these kinds of details are recorded for us in Scripture. It makes me feel close to Jesus when I read, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus... Tired as he was. Thank God for that. Because I I have this pressure, like Jesus is like 18 hours of straight ministry, and he was fresh, and he looked good, and he was ready. He goes, he was so tired. That's how I feel 99% of my waking life. So tired. Just constantly tired. I can't wait for heaven. The first million years of eternal life, I'm just going to sleep. Don't even bother me. I'm just sleep for like a million years. And then I'll check out what's what, all right? And so he's tired. And it's clear he's hungry because he sent his boys to the town. Go to 7-Eleven. I don't care what it is. Kielbasa, a Pop-Tart. I'm starving. So they, they go and get food. They're on a grocery run. And he's clearly thirsty because here he is at a well. And he sees a woman. And he goes, hey, I sure am thirsty. Could you give me a drink? Now, do you see how natural and real and ordinary the start of that conversation is? I mean, it comes, it's not like some, some uh, opening gambit. It's not some way. Sometimes the way we're trained in evangelism, it feels almost like we're being taught spiritual pickup lines. Hey, I see you got a book there. So you like books, huh? I got a great book. It's called the Bible. You want, you know, it's like, it's like we're being trained how to like pick up girls. Hey, baby, so you like One Direction, huh? Um, there's One Direction to my heart. You know, like, doesn't it ever just feel very contrived, very artificial, manipulative? Like, I want to get into a conversation with you, not because I care about you at all or I'm interested in you. I just want to get you and this encounter to a certain place. And as long as I can close the sale, One more notch on my belt. That's all I care about. That's the way it felt to me when I was getting a lot of evangelistic training early in my Christian life. What I love about the start of this conversation is that it comes from a very real and honest place. Jesus isn't going, okay, let me see. How do I get this here? Um, Desert, noon, I'm at a well. There's this woman. She's drawing water. I got it. I'm going to ask her for a drink. I don't think that's what happened. I think Jesus is like, Sure, I am parched. If only I had thought to get some water. And here's this woman, and he just asked her. And here's the thing. In the Christian world today, a lot of writing and teaching circulates around how we need to serve the world to gain an audience. 
a, cold, a cup of cold water, of a meal, some clothing, any way that we can serve them. I've heard about churches who walk through their community finding the dirtiest gas station bathrooms and saying to the freaked out gas station owner, uh, could we clean your bathroom for free? He's like, why would you do that? I don't even want, I own the place. I haven't been in there in six years. It's like nuclear. And they say, you know, um, we like doing this kind of, nobody likes doing this kind of thing. Right? What I love about this is he doesn't serve her. He asks her to serve him. Talk about a radical approach to evangelism. Starting a conversation by asking for a favor. I like that style. Like, Can I have a dollar? <laughs> Can you have some food? Are you going to finish that pizza? But here's the thing. What I love about it is if you are alert, life will present you a thousand opportunities a week. To start a conversation. I mean, just yesterday, I started a conversation with somebody this way. Why would the coach run a zone defense when four out of the five kids on the floor are bigs and they can't hustle at all? Why is he running a full court press and leaving us three on five every single time down the floor? Can you figure that out? And it started with, I was disgruntled, by the way, my son's coach was coaching. Okay, I was a little upset about it. And I noticed... The father of the other point guard sitting next to me was also like, what is, and so I, I was kind of connecting to him on this vibe of like disgruntlement, and it started there. It just started with, I'm kind of ticked off about what I'm seeing on the floor. It's like someone who doesn't know basketball is in charge of this, and it was a little ungenerous, but I began there. And I just asked him, why would you, and he goes, yeah, I don't know. And we just started talking about alternate strategies, armchair quarterback and this whole thing. But at the end, we stopped even thinking about that. And what I realized is I had sat next to this person at numerous games and I had never introduced myself. And out of the natural, organic place of my disgruntlement over the coaching strategy, we started a conversation. Now, I didn't bring him to a point of, kneeling with me on the floor of the gym and praying to accept Christ, saying the sinner's prayer. But the truth is, he went from being some stranger to being some guy that I now know, and we made a connection. It was not as hard as I thought to just start a conversation. Not every conversation we start is going to be a spiritual one. But you can't really get to that point without starting a conversation at all. I love that it was contextually relevant in that he was thirsty, he was at a well, and so he asked for what was right in front of him. And I want to just encourage you to be alert because there are people all around you who would be willing to just engage in some real and human conversation that goes beyond the surface. Now, I also want to remind you that we're talking about conversations. I actually am nerdy enough that I did a word count, and in this conversation... Jesus spoke 214 words against the woman's 130 words. So he almost doubled her word count. But if you look at the cadence and the rhythm of this conversation, it is truly a dialogue. There is this taking turns going back and forth as one says something and maybe asks a question. The other responds and asks another question. And so there is this real back and forth dynamic. I want to remind you that a conversation is a two-way dialogue. I remember when I was being trained in evangelism in seminary, I had to go through this uh, evangelism course. Now think about this. I took four classes in Greek and one class in evangelism. It kind of tells you what they must think pastors are going to do. 
Do you know how much I've studied Greek since seminary? <laughs> I just say it's Greek to me, man. I, I've forgotten more Greek than most people have learned. I got one class in counseling. Guess how much counseling I do? <laughs> I'm not saying that original languages are bad. I'm saying they should load up. Seminary really should take eight years, not four. And I really don't think my Greek exegetical courses should quadruple the amount of training I get in some of the more organic and earthy things I do as a pastor. And in my evangelism class, I was taught evangelism explosion, and I was made to go door-to-door through the south, southern part of Amish country, knocking on doors. The southern part of Amish country I found is not Amish at all. It's very angry. It's a very angry, hostile, vicious region of the country. And... Um, I don't know if it's because they have to drive behind those buggies all the time. They're, they're a little bit upset with, I don't know what it is, but it kind of went like this. Hello, sir. Um, can I just ask you a question? If you were to die today and you stood at the gates of hell, do you think you'd go to heaven or hell? If you were at heaven's gates and St. Peter asked you, why should I let you in? What would you say? And then they would say something and there was a whole script I would go through. And sometimes as I'm doing my spiel, the person would interrupt with questions, and here's what I would actually say. Could you just hold on for a second? Let me just finish because I'm going to forget. Let me just do my thing, and then you can ask your questions. I thought, man, you know, I don't want to poo-poo evangelism. Lots of people came to Christ through evangelism explosion. But it was in an era of our culture where people made speeches at each other. We just took turns doing monologue. And in some ways, if you watch political TV today, that's all it is. Nobody's actually listening to anybody. We're just taking turns vomiting on one another. Yeah, that's my thing. You go ahead. I don't care what you have to say. It's how it feels sometimes. And I think the truth is, when we're talking with people in a conversation, it's just as important to hear what they're saying. You may not agree with what they're saying, but you'll be amazed how it affects you if you really listen to what's on people's hearts. Those of you who are parents of teenagers, and I'm talking as much to myself, it is so easy to let a teenager start the first two words and you're like, oh, I know exactly where you're going. Here we go again. There you go once again with your, and you just, you stop listening. And the teenager's like, I hate this. I got something to say, and you dumb parent, you have no idea how I'm going to finish that sentence. You think you're so smart. You don't know me at all. I'm leaving. And you lose that kid. If you're the parent of a teenager, can I really urge you Listen, you're not as smart as you think. Neither am I. They've got something to say, and I think it'll blow your socks off if you really listen to what your children are saying. Some of you have precocious kids who are not teenagers yet, but they will give you an education, man. If you really listen, they're like, oh, let me drop something on you. And they start talking like, oh, my goodness. Like, that's challenging to me. I'm really hearing your heart. I understand your spirit. It's one of my resolutions this year. I really want to try to listen better because I think I'm very good at making speeches, man. If you ever sat in counseling with me and there there are times when I get on a roll and they're like, I actually get diaphragm cramps because I've done so much talking while you just sat there. I repent of that. I want to learn to be a better listener than a talker this year. Conversations are just that. They're dialogues. And I'll give you a second thing that I notice about this encounter Jesus had. It's important to get personal. 
It's important to get personal. I think we live in a society that is so deathly afraid of stepping on toes and crossing boundaries and getting into people's space that the truth is we end up spending most of our time outside the fence with people relationally. You know, it's awkward when your neighbor comes to give you Christmas cookies and you have them stand outside the door the whole time. At some point, you've got to say, why don't you come in? And that's a big step. It may not seem like much, but some of us live next door to people for years and have never once physically stepped inside their home. Think about that for a minute, just how weird a situation that is. That you could throw a brick and hit their house, but you've never once stepped inside the front door. That says something about the society we live in and the way we think about who my neighbor is. Some of us, because we're so afraid of going there, stay outside the fence even with people we've known for years and years. I won't mention the name, but there's somebody I've known for 30 years and I was at his house not that long ago and we're just hanging out late at night watching something And I looked over and I go, my gosh, I've known you for 30 years and I don't know you at all, man. How is that possible? I'm so uncomfortable. I don't even want to be here right now. We're doing this thing that in form, it looks like something two old boys do together. But I don't know you, man. I I know you, but I wouldn't really say you're my friend, my boy. What do we know about each other? What have you ever shown me? What have I ever really shown you? Have you ever had that feeling walking away from a conversation or an encounter? Like, I've known you way too long to feel this shallow with you. Have you ever walked away from your small group feeling like that after your third year with a group of people? We talked about the bulls again. Oh, God. I don't think I can put up with another week of that. Of nobody opening their hearts, no one laying it out there, nobody being vulnerable, no one telling the truth. Us just sitting around a bucket of chicken going, uh, you're going to get the six plus or the six? Which, which one are you going to upgrade to? Which, which one? As if that matters at all. And we walk away going, that's all we talked about was the, the, the merits of the iPhone 6 versus the iPhone 6 plus. At some point, did you want to bang your head against the wall and go, do I know any of these people? What is this? And it's because we're so afraid of crossing lines that sometimes we stay outside of the fence for the entirety of a relationship. Look at this encounter. If this, were, if this is the way all my evangelistic encounters went, I do it all the time. It's just like, like tee it up and knock it out of the park. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's really well done. And then, and then, look at what, as as if on cue, the woman goes, oh, that's my line. Uh, Sir, give me this water. Like, it's perfect. You've got her exactly where you want her, right? But Jesus isn't there to close the sale. That's not his drive. He wants her to see something important about God and about herself and about this life. He doesn't just want to get her to the point where she's repeating words after him. She wants her, he wants her to be saved, to understand. And so at the very moment when she is teed up and ready to hit out of the park, he does this very weird thing. He goes, okay, that's great. You know, give me the water, fine. I'm going to give you the water, 
But first, don't drink alone. Go home, get your, get your husband. It may seem cruel, but he knew all along she has no husband. But that she's had five husbands, and the man she's shacking up with now is not even her husband. See, here's the thing. This woman had a very difficult past with men. When you fail five times at marriage, and think about this, in her day, a woman could not initiate divorce. That means that she got married five times and dumped five times. That, that'll have an effect on a person. When you fall in love or whatever it is, and you stand at the altar, you make a lifelong promise, and five times a man discards you, it's going to have a profound effect on your sense of worth and hope and dignity. She had not given up on this, but she gave up on marriage itself. She said, you know, maybe marriage is the problem. Maybe marriage doesn't work. Maybe I'll just get a man. So this last man, she didn't even bother marrying. She endured the scorn and reproach of her society because she basically said, I still need something, but I don't think I did it the right way. So when it comes to her relationship with men, this is her most sensitive wound. This is her open, gaping wound in her heart. And most of us, when we sense that something big is happening, like if you're talking to your friend who just lost their spouse to a terminal illness, most of us would be so uncomfortable, we're like, to say anything, but you'd, even when you go, oh, I'm, I'm dying of hunger. Ooh, sorry, that's really insensitive. Like you're on your pins and needles all the time. I don't want to talk about this big thing, which I know is the only thing going on with you right now. We want so badly to avoid that painful, awkward, uncomfortable subject. But the truth is that's the only subject playing on the closed-circuit television of that person's life. It's the defining issue of their whole life. Do you think little Zacchaeus with his Napoleon complex, spending his whole life shorter than ever, looking up to everybody, wasn't motivated by that to become wealthy in a vindictive way? to seek whatever form of power he could get. And don't you think that Jesus knew that? But what does Jesus do? Hey, little guy up in that tree hiding from everyone. Come down from there, you little guy. I mean, that's cruel in a way, isn't it? Here's a little man hiding in a tree, looking, trying not to be noticed. Doesn't even want to show the world around him he has any interest in spiritual things. And Jesus goes, hey, man, come on down. And then to his horror, he goes, I'm going to come to your house today to eat. Dude, come on, just back off a little. I need some space. But Jesus crosses the boundary. He goes there. To the very defining sore spot, that life issue which consumes that person. It's the only thing they ever really talk about or think about or feel deeply. And he goes right there. And why does he do that? Why would he tell a woman who is in such pain over failed relationships and love, go and get your man and bring him here? I don't think he's being cruel. I think he's doing a few things that are very purposeful. I think one thing he's doing is he's saying, look, everybody's thirsty. Everybody. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God deposited eternity into our hearts. You know what that means? That means he puts something in us, a desire that this world, for all its riches, will not actually satisfy. 
And your experience will be you'll go through life feeling thirsty and hungry all the time until you find the thing for which your hunger was created, your thirst was made. That's just the way we are. We're driven for something, but we're not always sure what that thing is. And so with what's available to us, we try to quench that thirst somehow. And the first thing he's doing for this woman is saying, you need to know and you need to recognize your way is not working. It's a very natural place to go. We long for love. It's ultimately the great love of God for us. But the love of a man will do. And if I can't get love, at least, you like these curves, big boy? You know, like if he's really into her, he's lusting after her, he desires her, he would fight with other men to get her, that's good enough because what else can I expect? She settled for what she could get. And because this woman was probably very physically attractive, very, she had, you know what I'm saying? She was built on the kind of chassis men like. And so men were drawn to her, and that was her power. That's the means by which she would get something in this world, and she used what she had. That's what we all do. We use what we have to try to get some form of satisfaction for this thirst. And what Jesus wanted to show her was, your way's not working. You're trying. I'm not going to fault you for trying. Everyone does. But do you see that your very pursuit for water has broken your life? It's why your life is such a mess. And related to that, I think Jesus is showing her, I'm not offering you water like, ah, that was good, like a refreshing beverage. He was offering her water the way if you had walked through a desert for four days and you were at the edge of death and water was life. He was offering her water not as a cool, refreshing drink, but as the solution for the defining problem of her life. Here's a theological way to say it. She had a darkness in her that we would call sin. A desire and a way of pursuing that desire that was very, very off, very destructive to herself and unpleasing to God, and it was destroying her life. And Jesus wanted to show her, I'm not just giving you some value-added accessory. I'm healing you of spiritual death. You are dying right now in your spirit. And what I'm offering you is life. Have you ever had a string of days where you woke up and had zero desire to be here? Not here at church. Maybe that's every Sunday. But like, have you ever just had zero desire to be on the planet? You just kept waking up going... What is this exactly? I want to be excited. I want to feel alive, but nothing. There's just nothing going on in here. I find nothing but things to complain about, people to get angry at, whining all day. And and at some point you feel like something is wrong with me. And something is, usually it's the last step of the train is you, you go, something's wrong with me. Usually it starts with something's wrong with you and you and you and you. And then something's wrong with the whole world. But finally you get to a place of honesty and you say, something's wrong with me. And when you experience that, it's one of that those early scientists show you there's this spiritual deadness that settles on the human heart. And Jesus is life. You might try to find it in your husband or your wife or your girlfriend or your boyfriend, but that's an awful burden to place on another fallen, broken, thirsty human being. You, you make me happy. You make this bad feeling go away. You fill me. 
can't do that. You start do for me first. <laughs> you can't do that for each other. It's too much to ask of another human being. And if you're looking at this other person, well, why are you ruining my life? Time out. That other person's not ruining your life. You're empty. There's a spiritual death settling over you. And the answer is not a better marriage. The answer is not a better job, a bigger house, a nicer car. The answer is that the living water is now flowing in you and out of you and and welling forth into a stream of life. That's what's missing. I'm not saying that your relationships, your career, your house may not need a little work. But that's not primarily what's making you feel that way. There's a deadness in our spirits that will persist until the day that we draw from the well of living water that's available to us in Jesus Christ. I think he was also showing another profound thing, that he already knew the worst thing about her, and he still loved her anyway. How many of you guys remember your senior year of high school? Raise your hand. Okay, you remember that? Now, how many of you from senior year went on to university? Okay, so here's the universal feeling. Everyone pegged me in in high school, right? I was the nerd or I was the jock or I was the funny girl. But I'm going to go to college and nobody knows me there. I'm going to get to reinvent myself in front of people who have no idea what I'm like. I thought that. So I wanted to go and be the reflective guy for a while, the serious thinker. Hmm. I don't say much, but when I do, people listen. Come, you know how long that lasted? <laughs> I was quiet for like three days. <laughs> like I am what I am. I just am. Like that's not me. But it's tempting when you think someone doesn't know you to try to be something else. But Jesus is going, I know everything. She thought he was being respectful and engaging her because he had no idea what kind of shady lady she was. And he goes, no, from the time I laid eyes on you, I knew who you were. But I still loved you. I treated you with respect. I engaged you because I see more than the things you've done wrong. I see you. You know, Jesus says to his disciples who are busy scandalizing themselves over Jesus, our teacher's talking to this shady lady. Can you imagine if you saw me having a conversation with some woman on some street corner and it was clear that she was a lady of the night, a prostitute, and you're like, I don't think our naive, innocent pastor knows that's a call girl. He thinks she's just talking to some friendly girl on the street and witnessing to her. No, I know she's a lady of the night. But, you know, like what if you were scandalized by this? That's what was going on with them. They come back from the grocery run and they're like, He's so wise in heavenly things, but he has no idea how this world works. Does he have any idea who he's talking to? And they go and try to rescue him from this bad, it's so bad for his reputation. And he goes, look, you guys have no idea what's going on here, do you? You see a woman gathering water at noon because she doesn't want to see other people. She would endure the scorching heat of the noonday sun rather than take the scorching reproach and judgment of the other women in the morning or in the evening. 
You see her and you see me talking to her and you're worried about my reputation. What else do you see here besides a scandalous woman? I see a woman lost to our Heavenly Father and I can't deal with that. I can't just ignore that and say, well, what do you want from her? She's one of those girls. And he says to them, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. We have so many reasons we say people don't want to hear. But the truth is, I think we don't want to speak more than they don't want to hear. I am consistently surprised how deep people are willing to go very quickly if you will just open your heart to them. Sometimes I'm scandalized by how deep and how fast they go because I'm I'm like, I just met you and I'm counseling you on this train car. And they're pouring out stuff they wouldn't tell some of their closest friends. And you know why I think they do that? Because I think there's so much spiritual hunger and so little spiritual outlet. Men especially. Men, pay attention for a second. You know, our society portrays us as shallow idiots. You know, Homer Simpson is the way our society thinks most men are. (sighs) Give me a donut. You know, like we're just stupid oafs. But look at the nature of our conversations with each other most of the time. We earned that reputation for a reason. Men talking to each other is just one step better than watching monkeys talk to each other. I'm just telling the truth. We don't go very deep. There's not much we really pour in once in a while. But the truth is there's so much. And that's even in the church. I think we're doing better in here. When you go out there, I just remember it. I was at a bar with some of the other parents when I was chaperoning the sixth grade camping trip for my son. After all the kids went down for an evening activity, the parents had two or three hours of free time. They all wanted to head over to a local bar. So I sat. And it's not every day I hang out at bars with non-believers. I live in church world as a pastor. I'm always around people who go, uh, can we pray for this beer? You know, things like that. So, you know, like I'm in this, and I was just watching with fascination. And I was astounded at the level of superficiality. That passes for conversation. It could be that I just happen to be the most shallow group of Americans in the country, but I doubt it. I I was just listening. I'm like, wow. If this is as deep as it goes when people get together, I can only imagine how desperately hungry their souls must be to talk about something even a little deeper, just something that's meaningful, something that might actually change me or touch me. If we start a conversation and dare to go and get personal, I think it will shock you how ready people are to really engage with another human being and talk about eternal, weighty, meaningful things. I think there's so much hunger out there right now. If you want to go deeper with people, it's going to take some courage. Time and time again, no matter how many times I see God work this way, when I'm at that threshold and I feel this prompting in my spirit, go there, and I'm about to, it's always nerve-wracking. It's terrifying. I'm like, what if I misstep here? What if... I, I, let me give you an example. One of my, my, kids, um, my, my kids' friends, their dad has just been diagnosed with cancer, and I, I just wanted to minister to him, so I walked up to him at the game yesterday, and I'm just talking to him. I said, hey, listen... Uh, 
my kids just told me, and here I am feeling, I, I should just address it. Like, cancer is cancer, right? But I, I didn't know how sensitive I could be. So, I, you know, I was kind of pussyfooting around it, going, ah, uh, so, like, I kind of heard that um, you're not well. And he just goes, yeah, I have some cancer right now. He said, like, he has a sore throat. Like, just, I have some cancer right now. And I just realized, like, He's ready to talk about it. It's real. He's dealing with it. And I just feel like people are, it's right there in front of them. They want to talk about the things that are touching their life. Truth is, the very few people around them want to go there. If you want to go there, it's going to take some courage. And when you go there, you may not always like what you hear and see. I'll close with this. Hugh Halter, in his book, Flesh, by the way, in your title of book, Flesh, you absolutely need a subtitle. (laughs) The subtitle of the book, Flesh, is bringing the incarnation down to earth. He talks about the fact that Jesus is God who came down among us as one of us. And here's what he writes. Jesus was God and thus the most holy true, and perfect being. And he was the most non-judgmental person you would have ever met. People should have been intimidated and afraid to even approach him, yet they came toward him. People wanted to hear what he had to say about their broken lives. And when he finally spoke, they listened and changed. Jesus showed that you don't need to condemn a person before that person will change. And that's why he said he did not come into the world to condemn, but to save. I think it's important that we exercise the courage to go there. And when we do, it's also important that we exercise the compassion to remain there with those people. To let them know that as they're revealing the darkness in their life, We're not running for the light. We'll stay right there with them in the spirit of Jesus Christ, not condemning, not judging, but letting them speak and listen their way to a dawning understanding and eternal life. As I reflect over the last 20 years of my ministry, I can count less than a dozen people that I have personally, in some direct fashion, ushered into salvation. I know many people have written me emails after speaking engagements saying, as you preached, I came to trust Jesus. I don't count those. But I'm talking about me sitting with a person and having a spiritual conversation that changes their life forever. I'm hoping in the next 20 years, should the Lord grant me that, that we'll do better. And I want to invite you to get fired up about that. And over the next nine weeks, I want to equip us to do just that. Are you ready? Yeah? Are you nervous? You don't need to be. If knowing Jesus is the greatest thing in your life, why feel heavy about sharing that great thing with someone else? They want it as much as you want it. They'll love it as much as you love it. Remember that. Let's get talking with people 
have some life-changing conversations. Let's pray together. I think there's no shortage of words in our culture. In fact, I would guess that the amount of words and breath we're expending is affecting our atmosphere. We're talking so much. But for all the talking, I wonder how many truly life-changing conversations we are a part of on any given day. I want to encourage you to set the bar higher when you have the opportunity to talk to people. Even though it's easier to stay in that safe place of iPhones and the Chicago Bulls, take a step of faith and go a little deeper. You'd be surprised what happens so much of the time. Even if sometimes God leads you to poke a finger into their deepest wound, that might be the conversation that begins a life change that's going to be eternal for them. So why don't we just ask the Lord to make us alert and compassionate and to give us a genuine love for other human beings, a real concern for people. Let's go to him and ask him to put that in us. Can we do that right now together? Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.